um, to you. If you want to turn your Bibles, you might want to turn to the second passage, which is Joshua 5.13. But I'm going to read a short passage to begin with from Hebrews 11, verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And then Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Neither, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. By your spirit to be upon every mind in this place, that they will grasp, apply, perceive the message as you intend. For my tongue that I will be cleansed to be your transparent vessel to convey everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. I pray that the word will be clear, simple, life-changing, and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt that God betrayed you? I think that most Christians at some point feel that, but it could be that not all do. Joshua is the person we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at his defining moment. He was God's chosen successor to Moses. And at the beginning of Joshua, the opening words are, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses, my servant, is dead. We get God's opinion of Moses. And he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. What do you suppose is God's opinion of you? What would he say of you when your life is over? I can think of no greater thing to have said of me or anyone else than this, to be called God's servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the promise of Jesus for those who have been faithful at the judgment seat of Christ. God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend, and yet God did not say, Moses, my friend, is dead. I've thought a lot about that. He didn't say that. Moses, my servant, is dead. Is that significant? Yes. Abraham is called God's friend also. And Jesus called the 11 disciples friends. 
presumably being called a friend is an upgrade from being a servant. And I would be glad if God called me his friend. But for some reason, I still aspire for him to regard me as his servant. I would feel authenticated that I am doing what he wants me to do. And that would mean I have been obedient. I'm going to say something you might be shocked to hear. And you may, may need time to absorb it, think about it. You may disagree. But I somehow fear that friendship with God could somehow become superficial. Um, here's partly why I say that. Love that looks upward is adoration. Love that looks across is affection. Love that looks down is grace. We're saved by grace. Now, love that looks across, that is what some people want with God. They don't want him way up there, a God of glory that they are in awe of. They, they want kind of same level. There are people like that. Well, why is this an important word? You know, this message was given to me some months ago before I ever came over here, and I wanted to preach it the first Sunday here. It's been on my heart burning all this time. I wanted to preach it the first Sunday back in February, but because we're doing the series on uh, the major Old Testament figures and their defining moments, I thought, well, we'll wait. But today, we have reached the place of Joshua. So why is this so important? Well, it's this. You have an invitation today to get to know God's ways. Are you interested in knowing God's ways? Moses had an invitation to ask for anything he wanted. And Moses said, let me know your ways. Now, in any case, God said basically two things to Joshua. One, get moving. Second, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Well, when do you suppose the defining moment of Joshua's life took place? You could make a case that he had more than one. Most of us do have more than one. Uh, was it when Moses laid hands on Joshua? This partly meant a transfer anointing. And so that was certainly a defining moment. Or was it when Joshua refused to go along with the majority who thought Israel should not march into Canaan early on? That was certainly a defining moment. But it is my view, the defining moment in the life of Joshua came shortly after the children of Israel had crossed to Jordan into Canaan. And so, when he gets on the other side. He comes near Jericho. And he looked up and saw a man standing in front of them with a drawn sword in his hand. 
And Joshua went up to him and said, Are you for us or for our enemies? You know what the answer was? Neither. Neither. Joshua got the shock of his life. Surely it goes without saying that God was with him. He came out of the wilderness after 40 years. He had been obedient. And now they have the challenge to tear down Jericho and conquer the whole land of Canaan. And so when he says, whose side are you on? Joshua fully expected to say, oh, I'm on your side. That is not the answer. The commander of the armies of the Lord said, neither. Surely it goes without saying God is with us, not our enemies. Why ever did God say this to Joshua? Well, it was his defining moment. And this may be for somebody here. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a defining moment that determined your perception of God and you were never the same again? Well, that's exactly what happened here. It is when one's perception, concept of God is shaped and set in forever. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Now, what's going on? Well, for one thing, Joshua needed to be put in his place. He wasn't prepared. He thought he had such a claim on God. He had a franchise. God was with him. There's no way he could fail. Not possible. And then he's put in his place when the commander of the armies of the Lord say, I'm on neither side. I don't know if you've done much reading in philosophy, theology. There was a German theologian, his name was Ludwig Feuerbach. And uh, his thinking gave rise to Marxism, atheism, and it became a philosophy. Here's what Feuerbach said, that God is nothing more than man's projection upon the backdrop of the universe. In other words, man, men, women, want to believe that there's a God up there that's going to look after them, give them heaven when they die. And this is what people want to believe. It doesn't exist except in their minds it exists. So therefore, God is nothing more than our projection upon the backdrop of the universe. Now, here's the interesting thing. I wish that you could grasp this. The God of Feuerbach would never say what the commander of the Lord's army said. You see, Feuerbach is saying that God would say something that we want to hear. This is the last thing Joshua wanted to hear. Now, you've had uh, occasion to hear me use a phrase called betrayal barrier. What we're having here is 
every sovereign vessel of God feels betrayed of him, but breaks it, passes through it. Every sovereign vessel, what sovereign vessel? Chosen. You've been chosen. Special task. Work for you to do. Not all Christians are sovereign vessels. They're believers. They love the Lord. But there are those who have been chosen. I would like to think that's everybody here. This much I know. Every sovereign vessel hits a wall. Suddenly feels betrayed. And they say, God... How can you do this? How can you say that? What's happened? Well, the comment of the army of the Lord is strange when his reply is, whose side are you on for us or for our enemies? Reply, neither. Neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. It's a strange comment, not what you'd expect. But the more I think about it, the less I'm surprised. You've heard me also say that in my days in Westminster Chapel, we had a prayer covenant and 300 people signed it and carried it with them and they prayed every day for this and I will quote it exactly. We pray for the manifestation of the glory of God in our midst, along with an ever-increasing openness in us to the way he chooses to turn up. That's the way we put it. We pray for a manifestation of God's glory along with an ever-increasing openness in us because God may choose to manifest his glory in a way that we don't like. As a matter of fact, if he chooses not to manifest his glory, even that is a manifestation of his glory because he chose not to do anything. The question is, will we accept that? Well, I pushed this at Westminster, and here's the thing. When you ask for God's glory, you must remember that his glory refers to him and not to us. Well, in those days, we'd, uh, I thought, paid the price. Um, I put my ministry on the line. After several years there, I was accused of theological heresy. It didn't stand the test. I'm not that. And I was vindicated. But in the process, we lost half of our deacons who wanted to get me out not because of my theology, but because they didn't like changes in the chapel. They didn't like uh, that I was ur urging everybody to witness personally. They want the preacher to do that. And I'm out on the streets witnessing every Saturday. That's not what a preacher should do. He should do it in the pulpit, let the people once in a while do things like that. And we lost a lot of members. And that's not all. I invited Arthur Blessett to Westminster Chapel. He turned us around. Best decision I made in 25 years. And then I began to invite others. And I thought 
by virtue of all these risks I took, that God would honor that. So I honestly felt if God is looking down from heaven on the whole world, he'd focus on England, London, Westminster Chapel. Was convinced of it. Now, I used to say this. Everybody knows I said it there. I said, what if God were to manifest his glory at Kensington Temple and not Westminster Chapel? Would we affirm it as being from God? I said, what if he manifested his glory at all souls laying in place, but not to us? Would we say, that's God? Well, you see, I never thought I'd have to do that. It sounded good to say, we're willing for God to do it anywhere else. But in my heart of hearts, I thought, it'll come to us. We had the claim. We'd paid the price. We were so sure. And so at some point in time, back in 1984, I began to hear of strange things going on in a church called Holy Trinity, Brompton. And uh, my immediate reaction well, that can't possibly be of God. Because if what's happening there really was of God, it would have come to us first. And besides, we all know that the Church of England is apostate. We all know that the staff at HTB, they are Etonians with their posh accents. God would not do it there. One of the most important decisions I ever made, having publicly spoke against it. I then went back to the pulpit some weeks later and said I was wrong. It's not coming here. It's happening over there. Here's the question. Would you be willing for the glory of God so to be the focus that wherever he shows up, and if it's not what you want, would you be willing to say, that's God, and we must affirm it? Well, a common danger of all of us is to begin to feel that we have some kind of claim upon God. Let me tell you about my own defining moment in this area. The sermon I'm preaching today, which has been uh, 50 years in the making, 50 years, was precipitated by two of my mentors. One, his name is Rolf Barnard. He preached a sermon called Your God versus the God of the Bible. And then my other mentor, Dr. N. Burnett Magruder, who ordained me. I was talking to him one day, and we were discussing what shows the highest level of devotion to God. What's the high, how the best it can be, as good as it gets, highest level of devotion. I said to him, it's the willingness to die as a martyr, to submit to the sword, to be burned at the stake. I said, that's the highest. At that time, he took out a sheet of paper and wrote down these words. I carried that sheet of paper with me for years until it became so wrinkled, I put it in my Bible, I wrote it out. 
Here's what he said. He said, my willingness to forsake any claim upon God is the only evidence that I've seen the divine glory. That shook me rigid. I'll repeat it. My willingness to forsake any claim upon God is the only evidence I have seen the divine glory. Dr. Magruder was trained at Yale. He there discovered Jonathan Edwards. And the reason I quote Edwards from time to time was the influence of Dr. Magruder. I've never been the same since. It partly refers to what we're talking about today. In fact, it's the heart of it. And yet it partly refers to what I was saying about friendship with God. Try not to misunderstand me here. I don't think it is particularly healthy to want God as a friend. You see, there's a trend to want to see God as a partner. A partner. Sort of on equal level. Rather than being our sovereign redeemer. And it's one of the reasons that some are attracted to the theology called open theism. Open theists would love the idea of friendship with God. Yes, we're in partnership. He looks to us for input because he's not sure what to do next. So he turns to you. Help me to know, what do I do tomorrow? And we tell him. There are people who love that. They love it. I can't imagine why anybody would like that. I want a God who's all-powerful, has a will of his own, a mind of his own, know what he wants to do, and I bow to it. That's the God of the Bible. Well, Joshua assumed he had a claim upon God because Moses chose him, and he was sure Moses was led of the Holy Spirit. Moses laid his hands on Joshua. That would show that he surely must have a claim on God. God commissioned him, said, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And Joshua had been obedient in everything. For that reason, he was so sure that when the commander of the armies of the Lord replied as he did, he would say, I'm for you. Now, here's the question I want to put to you right now. The statement of the commander of the army of the Lord, is this statement, I'm for neither, true or not true? Was it just a test? Just to see what Joshua would say? Or is it a true statement? Objectively true, that God is on neither side. Or that, I, didn't, I don't mean to me say God is on neither side. I'm saying the commander of the army of the Lord is not on either side. You see, it was a true statement. When the commander said neither, it was the true answer. Why? Here's why. The commander of the Lord's army is all out for God. The angel of the Lord doesn't do what we want. He does what God wants. And so the angel of the Lord is not looking for attention or for affirming 
By the way, you should know, you have an angel with you. Everyone here, the angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear him. God's angel for you was sent to you from the moment you were conceived in the womb and you were born. And he's been guarding you all these years, even before you were saved. That is what the angel does. You don't get to see him. You don't talk to him. Don't make that mistake. In fact, John said, I fell down to worship the angel. And the angel said, stop it. Worship God. You need to know you've got an angel. He doesn't want you to talk to him. Don't try to get on his good side because he is devoted 100% to God. And that's why the commander of the army of the Lord said, neither. The angel of God is all out for God's glory. As for the army of the Lord, that refers to countless angels. They follow their commander. But an angel cannot be swayed or bribed. Angels are perfect worshipers of God, and we should pray to worship God like they do, where all you want is his honor and glory. Well, now, Joshua needed to learn a fundamental lesson about God. Now, I, I don't mean to be unfair, but I suspect that there are those in the church, speaking generally, in some places. We're not interested in learning more about God. We're more interested in learning how God can work for us and get things done. We use him to achieve our end. And so you call on God when you're in trouble. You call on God when you need him. The notion of just getting to know him and worship him, whether or not he comes to your rescue. That's the issue. And I don't think a lot of people are interested in that. Learning more about God, but just learning more how to get God to work in our behalf. Well, why did Joshua need this? Here's why. To keep him from a feeling of entitlement. One of the curses of our generation is the sense of entitlement. We all feel entitled. And so Joshua needed to learn this. He needed to learn more and more about the true nature of God. The curse of the modern world, spirit of entitlement. The curse in some places in the church. They encourage you to feel entitled. They built a whole theology on it. It's called prosperity teaching. Beware of it. It can be very attractive, especially if you're struggling financially, and so you go where you're going to be encouraged to believe it's all going to be okay, especially if you give to them. There's a famous preacher in America, preaches to tens of thousands, most popular person on TV today. Friends of mine 
when we lived in Key Largo. They lived across the street from us. And I tried to get them to go to church. Well, if I was preaching, they would come. If I wasn't, they wouldn't go. They did it to be a friend of me. And I said, uh, what are you doing? What about your spiritual life? Oh, we watch so-and-so on TV. And you know what, R.T.? He makes us feel so good. And that's not all. We can have our martinis and smoke and enjoy him saying, whatever it is, it's going to be fine. And it, we just feel so good. For some, that's the test. Well, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. How does that make you feel? Paul quoted it again, unless you thought it was an unguarded comment in the Bible. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. For that reason, we must always go to God on bended knee asking for mercy. Did you know the first thing a Christian should ask for, the first thing when you start to pray (laughs) is to say, have mercy on me. Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. First thing you ask for, forgotten note. The reason you have to ask you for mercy is He owes you nothing. You see, what makes mercy, mercy, is when God decides to give it. He can give mercy or withhold it and be just either way. Well, this is the thing. Asking for mercy as opposed to snapping your finger at God and expecting him to jump. You see, God lamented of ancient Israel. The old uh, people of Israel... He said, have not known my ways. And that is what made God so sad. You can almost hear the tear in God's voice. They have not known my ways. Question today, how important is God to you? You want to know his ways. Two things need to be restored to the church, among others, but these two. One, the fear of the Lord. The other, people of God asking for mercy. My friend Bobby Connor has an expression he's been using in recent years. Church is filled with people who worship a God they barely know. Does this kind of teaching surprise you? Does this disappoint you? See, God has a way of showing up in order to show his ways. You may not like his ways, but the way he is is described in the Bible. The true God, the God of the Bible. You see, his name is jealous. That's what we're told in Exodus 34. And you perhaps know that Oprah Winfrey, and we all love her, has openly admitted that she could not cope with a God who wants to have control over her. And so she abandoned her evangelical heritage, brought up solid. Couldn't bear the thought 
that God is jealous and wants to rule her life. And yet that's, the, that's precisely the kind of God I want. God is a jealous God, and that shows how much he loves us. So do you want to worship a God to see what you can get from him? Or do you want to worship him for who he is? God wants his people to know him. And you know, after Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, we don't know how many were there, but thousands. There's a place where you can go today where almost certainly the Sermon on the Mount took place. Some years ago, Lyndon Bowering and I were there, and he went to the top of the hill, and I stayed on the level ground where Jesus would have preached. And I started reading the Beatitudes, and Lyndon could hear it, though I was 100 yards away. It's just a little built-in cove where Jesus would have preached that, and it could be heard by thousands. When Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, and all the people went to their homes, one man stood behind. He knew his place, and so he's not going to rush up to Jesus, but he could tell by the way Jesus spoke that he thought Jesus might have mercy on him. Here's what the leper said, Matthew chapter 8. He fell down and said, Lord, if you will, you can heal me. Notice how I put it, if you will. The leper was bowing to the sovereignty and glory of God. If you will, you don't have to. I know you don't have to. You say the word, I'll be healed, and Jesus healed him. You see, that's the spirit that God wants his people to accept. God wants us to know him. And what is going on now, before the walls of Jericho would come down, the people of God must have an awe and respect for the true God. God instructed the angel to say what he did to Joshua for Joshua's sake. It was in Joshua's own interest to know much, much more about God than he did at the time. At that stage, Joshua thought he knew everything you could know about God. And was he ever in for a lesson? How well do you know the God of the Bible? Jeremiah said, Rejoice that you know me says the Lord. Rejoice that you know me. The greatest knowledge there is. One of the things, here's the irony if you're ready for this. One of the things that may emerge from all this that I'm talking about today is friendship with God. In fact, Psalm 25 verse 14 says, the fear of the Lord is with them who he will confide in. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and most translations today make it, the Lord will confide, confide in those that fear him. When he confides in you, he expects you to keep quiet about it. You don't run it off and say, oh, I just had a great vision from God. And God says, oh, can't talk to him anymore. 
You see, God gave Joseph dreams. And Joseph's mistake was telling them. I think the Lord would show us a lot more if we could keep quiet about it and just want to know what pleases him. Well, God would have done Joshua no favor to say, yes, I'm on your side. You see, some people, as I've been saying, worship God for one reason, to see what they can get from him. And God wants us to know his ways. God treats you with highest dignity when he appears to betray you. Have you ever noticed the way the 11th chapter of Hebrews ends? Maybe you just read through it and thought, mm, don't know what that means. You didn't bother with it? Did you not know that the people described in Hebrews 11 what they did, they did by faith? The writer says the world was not worthy of them. But did you know what it says at the end? None of them got what was promised. None of them got what was promised. Yet each of them turned the world upside down in their day. Some years ago when I saw this verse, I came up with this teaching that you're hearing about the betrayal barrier. Listen to these words. In Acts chapter 7, it comes from Stephen preaching before the council. God had promised Abraham Canaan. We all agree on that? It was a promise. And yet we're told God gave him no inheritance there, not even a foot of ground. What's going on? Well, God treats you with the highest dignity when he appears to betray you. What, what's he doing? He wants to know, do you love him for him being just like he is? Or do you love him because you can get what you want from him? That's the issue. Loving him for just like he is. And so God wants us to know his ways. Martin Luther used to say, you must know God as an enemy before you can know him as a friend. Now, I'm addressing sovereign vessels. That means you've been raised up for a purpose. Your time may not have come. And God is showing you things. He wants to know one thing. Will you worship him if he disappoints you? Whose side are you on? Neither. You know what? Joshua might have said, let's attack this commander. No. He fell down and worshiped. And the commander of the armies of the Lord says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Joshua accepted this teaching. And as a result, they conquered Canaan, Ai, one country, part of the country after another. And God kept his whole world. God wants you to love him just like he is. 
And it's also possible that God was saying, in effect, I'm not coming to take sides, I'm coming to take over. What we know is Joshua bowed and worshipped. And what the angel said precipitated the same worship of God in Joshua as it was in the burning bush when Moses was there. He was on holy ground. He took off his shoes. I just want you to know, this is holy ground. Can you cope with this? This is holy ground. Find out if you just want to know God. Well, the God of the Bible is a God of justice, and he requires that this justice be satisfied. You know that if you want to go to heaven, you've got to satisfy the justice of God. I don't know if you know that, but you do. Well, how do you satisfy the justice of God? Well, for one thing, it's nothing you'll be able to do in yourself because the law of God is flawless and nobody comes up to it. We're all sinners. Nobody could get to heaven if it were based upon your keeping the law. And there are 2,000 uh, minute instructions concerning the law. Nobody could keep it, except one did. That was Jesus. He was circumcised the eighth day. His parents kept the law for him. Then he came of age. He said, I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. Because of that, he could say on the cross, it is finished. The reason we go to heaven is because Jesus satisfied the justice of God by his life, by the blood is shed. Have you ever invited the God of the Bible into your heart? Mirrored in the person of Jesus, because he said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Have you ever said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit. As best as I know how, I give you my life.